Hello and welcome to episode 49 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in Modern and Pioneer. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Chicago, a mainstay on the BNR watch list, Shane Beeps. Stan, you know how I've been traveling a ton for work lately? Well, I didn't know that. I'm in your city. I'm here. I've infiltrated it. Yeah, but you're like at a Marriott hotel, which as far as I'm concerned is unincorporated Cook County. No, they they know where I am now. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm pretty far away from you, but I'm going to see you tomorrow. We're going to play some magic IRL. It's going to be real fun. Is that a threat or a promise? A little bit of both. Also in Chicago, recently restricted in vintage, Zach Colhan. Unplayable and modern, but a staple in more eternal formats. The godfather Dave Harbarger has unfortunately been banned in both Pioneer and Modern. Oh no. But we're expecting some quick errata on that ruling, possibly as soon as next week. This week we look at the results from the SCG Invitational, which featured high-level play in both Modern and Pioneer, which put some exciting new decks on our radar. Then in the dive down, we go over four bands across Modern's lifetime, with Pioneer bands coming in fresh every Monday. We thought now was a great time to look at the information Wizards of the Coast gives us regarding bands and get a better understanding of what makes a card bannable. Then maybe, just maybe, a listener question? But first, some housekeeping. Hello, and thank you to some recent patrons who joined the Dive Down Nation. Shout out to Max H, Nicholas M, Ryan L, Matthew S and Sean. Sean has no last name on Patreon. So there's sort of like a mythical figure, like a unicorn, Prince, Madonna. We had five new patrons this week. Yeah. I mean, yeah. is that this is accurate? One, two. Yeah, five. No one no one has yet taken us up on our offer to join in the 8 p.m.-ish range central time so that you get the live readout on air. So if you've been if you've been waiting, just join next week between like 8 and 10 Central, and you'll have a live Friday readout. We also have an exciting update to share regarding our awesome sponsor, Mana Traders. From now on, when you use promo code THEDIVEDOWN, all one word, when you sign up for a Mana Trader subscription, you will get 15% off your first three months of service. Not 10%, but 15%. That's like 5% better, right? That's 5% more. I'm not saying better, but money talks. Thanks to everyone who signed up to Mana Traders using our promo code so far and made this sponsorship such a success. We love Mana Traders. We have talked about them since day one. We're thrilled to be working with them and thrilled to be sharing a deal with our fans and listeners. So thanks to everyone who signed up for that and Mana Traders for this awesome sponsorship. Yeah, I just hit a year on my subscription with Mana Traders. So the entire time we've had this podcast, I've had a subscription. And now I get like six league pauses. And I think that Mana Traders is actually mad at me because I just keep hitting pause <laughs> on my leagues and I've had the cards out for like a week. Well, with all that out of the way, let's jump over to Shane, who's in Roanoke, Virginia for this segment. Wait a minute. I guess it's just a green screen that makes it look like he's in Roanoke. There's a lot of exciting restaurants behind me. Me and Ross, Miriam, we're doing the, the tour. The culinary tour? The culinary tour. God, I love Ross Miriam's new food and foodie podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the Pioneer Down? Yeah, it's all about food tokens and where to eat. <laughs> all right. 
So first, we'll just briefly touch on the BNR announcement that happened today. I think we were we were kind of expecting something in Pioneer, perhaps, because they've been somewhat aggressive with bands there. We've had no bands in Pioneer this week. I'm personally pretty happy with that. Um, we'll see how things shake out in the coming weeks, because as we will discuss in just a little bit, there's some decks that are currently doing quite well in a number of avenues of competitive play. But there was also no bannings in Modern. However, you know, after seeing three in Standard, one in Legacy, a restriction in Vintage, but nothing changes in Modern. Um, I think we'll also talk about in this large meta analysis what we think about that, if we think that that's, you know, where things should be right now or if they need to be acting more in Modern. But, you know, we don't really have to talk about that too much. But, Zach, you have, you have something you want to say. Just real quick. I, it was interesting that there was, wasn't any discussion about modern at all in the ban announcement. Occasionally they'll make a comment or be like, we are aware of the status of decks we're keeping on it. And there wasn't anything. And I wonder why. And I wonder if we'll ever get to know why. There's just so much focus on standard right now. You know, the, the lunch, the lunches can only take so long for these discussions to really go on. Not to mention the deafening screams about vintage and legacy. Watsy had to do something. Yeah, I mean, I think I will say Ren and Six probably should go in Legacy. I hope that the Legacy players enjoy that band. Probably will open up different decks rather than be like three-colored piles with just Ren and Six. Anyway, so we have a lot to talk about in our meta-analysis this week and the breakdown, so try to keep the clip at a good pace. We had a really good dump of information for both Modern and Pioneer the SCG Invitational, right? So the Invitational, if you don't know, is kind of like the equivalent of a Pro Tour level event. People have to qualify for them through finishing in a top eight of an Open or a SCG Regionals event or top four of a Team Open or a, a SCG Classic that happens during the Open weekends. Or they have to finish in the finals of an Invitational qualifier. You may have seen kind of an, an IQ be announced on like maybe a local Facebook page of a store you go to or something like that. They'll have IQs. So the Invitational takes place over three days, like a pro tour, and there's eight rounds the first day, eight rounds the second day, and then the top eight on the third day. So what they've historically had is four rounds each of standard and four rounds each of modern, at least lately, on each of those days. And then the finals format has regularly been modern, which has been cool for us to follow, sometimes standard. Um, I honestly can't recall the last time they did that. I, I, I try to watch the Invitationals, but you know, don't rely on my memory. So this time, however, due to the stagnancy and some of the issues related to standard, SEG audibled and made the formats pioneer and modern, which is awesome for us because that's what we are enjoying playing lately. That's what we're enjoying covering lately. That's what people seem to be interested in us talking about. So bang, bang, win, win. All the chicken, all the time. No feathers here. <laughs> Old chicken nonstop. So along with the, the invitational information, right, we can flesh out this picture of the current metagame, both in Modern and Pioneer, because we have things like the Modern Challenge on Magic Online has some interesting results. The Pioneer PTQ and Pioneer Challenge on Magic Online also happened this past weekend. So we have a whole bunch of data to make a more concrete picture of what's going on, right? We have, I think what we should do is take a snapshot of Modern, and then we can look at a snapshot of Pioneer because why mix this data up? So let's first talk about the uh, SCG Invitational, right? Because we got the day two metagames for both Modern and Pioneer. 
But what you have to remember is that the Invitational is a mixed format. So the results of any individual deck, any individual player for the Pioneer and Modern parts are going to get blended together. But we also got the seven seven win and one loss or better decks as well. So that lets us kind of say, okay, what decks went seven, one or better over the weekend? So we can isolate the results of individual decks from the other format that they were playing that weekend. So Zach, why don't you start uh, with the uh, the modern day two metagame? Sure. So for modern, the day two metagame was about 169 people and it was this breakdown. Simic Urza with 24 players and 14%. Uh, we have Amulet Titan, Grixis Death Shadow, and Simic Wurza, all at 18 players and 11%. So I think it's kind of silly to separate Simic Urza and Simic Wurza. I know they're different decks, but it just feels so, so unbearable. <laughs> we also have Mono Green Tron, Burn, and Eldrazi Tron, all about a 7% and 12 players. And then there are a few hangers-on or decks that still exist. Humans with six copies. Shane plays it. Devoted Devastation with five copies, and then Four Color Wurza, Infect, and Jun Death Shadow, all four copies. So, Simic Urza. Urza's good. Oko's good. Is this true? I've been out a little bit lately, so I'm not really caught up. Yeah, I mean, totally on the SEG circuit, right? Simic Urza is the deck that the teams, a lot of the teams and a lot of the big-name players seem to still be thinking is the best choice. Yeah, I think it's something we've seen a lot before, too. It's a really skill-rewarding deck. So if you spend a lot of time with the deck and a lot of time playing Magic, you're going to get better with it. We're also seeing people say that you know Death Shadow decks can do well against it. But even so, uh, Simic Urza is clearly still ruling the roost, at least on the SEG circuit. I feel like when people say Death Shadow is good against it, it means it has like an even 50-50 matchup. I mean, but what? We saw like 29%. Of the day two decks had Urza in some fashion. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like that's your favorite card right now. Hmm. Who are you talking to when you say that? Yeah, no one believes that in this podcast. I'm look, looking, looking, looking right at Zach. <laughs> I mean, so like what we're counting like Simic Urza, the Wurza variants, and then the Urza outcome deck, which seems to have kind of been forgotten by most competitive players, right? Yeah, so it goes. So. Like we mentioned, Death Shadow is one of the better decks against Wurza, or supposedly so. And that was represented here with 24 different Shadow decks. Mixture of Grixis, Jund, Four Color. There's really a lot of different viable shells for it. So do you guys think this is because Shadow, you know, the decks that are built around this creature are good? Do you think it might be because Thoughtseize effects and Inquisition of Kozilek are very good right now? Or could it even be, with regard to Grixis specifically, that Stubborn Denial is quite good right now? I think Stubborn Denial is really good. I think if you can take away sort of the reward for Urza decks, whether that be Sahili or Sai or anything, or even Urza, and all they have are ways to spin the wheels, I think you're... And like the whole thing is the deck can eventually get that piece again. It's very consistent. By taking it away, you have a window where things like big delve creatures and a death shadow are going to get in for a lot of damage. So, so Zach, in this scenario, are you kind of suggesting the players get to Thoughtseize away, something like Urza, something like Psy, and then count on Stumber Denial to take care of the rest, whether it's Outcome, whether it's Oko or whatever other non-creature payoffs they're using? Yeah, it feels like two pieces of disruption buys you a lot of time against Urza. If it, you can plan it right or get the right card, I think this deck is very easily able to quickly capitalize upon that. Yeah, I mean, some of the major weaknesses of shadow decks just aren't really that popular right now. You know, shadow decks don't like to see go wide creature decks. And when you're facing down a room full of like Amulet Titan and Urza based decks, 
Death Shadow is able to sort of keep the board clear with its removal. It's able to keep the hand clear with its hand disruption and get in big damage pretty quickly with its beaters. So I think that's just kind of the name of the game right now. It's beaters or it's beefers? Both. Beef, beady, beefy beaters. We'll be right back, folks. So one thing I appreciated, as I mentioned earlier, was that we got the seven and one or better decks. And so I'm just going to breeze through these. And so we had four color Death Shadow. Because, you know, it's it's blue, black, red, green. Who needs to play white any longer in any formats? Um, you know, it, it, because it has it's able to play Oko, uh, Once Upon a Time, Traverse the Uvenwald. So basically, this is like a Jund Traverse deck that's splashing blue to get access to Oko and Stubborn Denial. Because why not? Those spells are killer. Uh, it's got Mono Red Prowess. It's back from the dead. Uh, we have Infect with four Once Upon a Time because, yeah, you want more ways to find your Infect creatures, right? The, so there was a Simic Urza deck that went 7-1 or better at the Invitational, but it was really interesting. It was uh, Eli Cassis. He went really combo-heavy here. There's only four Urza as the creature threats and only two Ogos and 35 spells. You know, four Thopter Foundries, three Sword of the Meeks, a pile of cheap artifacts, and four Thoughtcast to dig through the deck. This is a build that I would think actually Grixis Death Shadow might have a hard time with because they have the sword combo. So your disruption, your counter magic isn't as good because the graveyard is a resource for this deck. So I wonder if this was someone expecting to see a lot of hand disruption and a lot of sort of grindy permission battles and thought this would be a good way to not care about that. Yeah, it's a smart build. I think when, you know, if if you're going to go combo, might as well go heavy into it, lean hard into it. The other Simic Urza deck we saw was like the Gilded Goose, Emery, Oko, Karn the Great Creator version, which attacks on so many different angles, but doesn't have the combo option at all. It's just the value angles. We saw Grixis Death Shadow go 7-1 or better. We saw Devoted Devastation with three Oko in the 75 and four Once Upon a Time because you want that creature redundancy. We saw a Wish Karn Mono Green Tron build that main decked Emrakul the Promise End as an interesting choice. So that, those were our seven one or better. So basically, I, I like that. That was a lot of different decks. Nothing was was overwhelming there besides a couple different Simic Urza style decks. Our top 16 players, which again was eight rounds of Modern and eight rounds of Pioneer, played a variety of decks. A lot of deck diversity in this bracket. And it's especially notable here to not pay attention to placements very much because the top eight was all Pioneer. So instead, we're just going to give some counts here. Among the top 16 players, we saw five Grixis Shadow pilots, mm-hmm. two Simic Urza, two Eldrazi Tron pilots, and then Singleton Humans, Mono Green Tron, Burn, Amulet Titan, Devoted Devastation, Crab Vine, hey, and Infect. And to round out our modern info dump, and to provide a bit of contrast, we had the Empty Joe Modern Challenge as well, which was similar but different. Because as always, we get the top 32 of these, but the meta breakdown of decks with two or more copies were Etron with five. Death Shadow decks had three copies. There were three Stoneblade decks. Love to see that. I thought Stoneforge was suddenly unplayable for some reason. Shane said that. He told me that explicitly, verbatim. Three Amulet Titan. A couple of Jund decks, including one being Oko Jund. Why not? Three Okos. Surprise. It's called Moist Jund, and Dave's not here to stop me. (laughs) We had a couple Red Prowess decks and a couple Storm decks. So, what did we not mention in this list? 
No Urza. Where is Urza? That is so weird. Like just last week, there was like a ton of Urza around in the challenge, right? Yeah, I wonder if this is a blip or maybe MTGO is ahead of the metagame, as we sometimes speculate it might be. I think Eldrazi Tron's really popular online. I certainly see it a lot and it puts up a lot of results. So I'm not surprised to see that maybe more presented online. I like it a lot. It's a very fun deck. I am surprised to see no Urza. Maybe the people that are, are playing that were all at SCG. Is that possible? Is overlap that small or that big? I'm willing to think it's just like a blip. Like you said, I think people are very hot on Etron on Magic Online right now, and also Death Shadow. It's just I think popular everywhere. It's it is interesting though. Like Stan mentioned, that Stoneblade is is holding on. I mean, typically I, I I've seen a lot of Stoneblade more in paper formats. Like I, this was a few weeks ago now, but at all of the the regional events, I think we saw a decent amount of Stoneblade, even though Urza was a thing because I think people kind of like the strategy. They like the grind. And they like playing with new cards. It was just recently unbanned after years of of people asking for that. What do you guys think we're learning about modern? With you know, we have we have a bunch of information, but are we seeing anything new? Are we learning anything new? Do you have any thoughts about what we're experiencing in the meta? What I feel like I am realizing or seeing is that maybe Wizards is okay with modern being a little more busted than maybe it was before, or that they are okay with seeing how much more busted it can get. Urza and Oko are very, very good. No one's disagreeing with that. No one's saying that they're that there are okay cards. But the degree of how good they are is a discussion, right? And I think we are seeing a modern right now that is a little faster and a little different than we've seen modern be. And they didn't ban anything. So maybe they're waiting to see if this is a permanent thing, if this is modern of how it's going to be, and they have to make moves then. Or maybe they're okay with, you know, Pioneer becoming a format where you can do more mid-range dirtly stuff. And modern is this format where things are a little less fair. And you're doing things like, playing turn one Urza sometimes or turn two Urzas, or you are threatening a combo more often on turn three, you're making your opponent have it on turn three. And I'm not trying to say any specifics, but I just feel like modern is a lot different than it was when we started this podcast in a very big way for me. And I wonder what the future of it is. And I think that in my opinion, we might see a more legacyification of modern. So I got to say, I agree with some of your conclusions, but I don't necessarily agree with all of your premises. Sure. I mean, definitely modern is a place where hyper-aggressive, more broken strategies get to live. Turn one blood man. Exactly. I just think that's the nature of the format. I'm not sure that the format is particularly fast right now, than, or at least not more fast than it's been earlier this year. I think in, in some cases, it's kind of slowed down and, and from what we've seen it be capable of and become a little bit more tempered. But really, I think the point that stands out to me with all of this data is I feel like modern is some of the most stable it's been in 2019. And whether or not we think that Urza or Oko is a problem, I personally kind of like the stability we're seeing. And I feel like it's a meta that savvy or shrewd players can attack rather than an unknown meta where we're not really sure what's tier one or tier two. And we're not sure how to brew into this type of format. See, I think that's super interesting. And I think that for me, the lack of consistency or more accurately the wide open field of modern was something that really drew me in when i started playing like a deck like scred could 4-0 an fnm if you're good enough and it's the right night you know and now it feels less and less like a fringe fun strategy can exist and more like 
hey, there are these decks and they're very good decks, but this is really what you can do and this is really how you can play modern at an effective level. So it's not necessarily a bad or a good thing. It's I think it's more of a personal opinion on it, but I think we are seeing modern become more of a defined format. Yeah, I think it's, we look at these competitive results and I think sometimes we go down, we get tunnel vision, right? Where it's like, we're looking at these a lot more than I think a lot of our listeners do. Than the average person. Yeah, I think a lot of people kind of rely on us a little bit to say, okay, well, what's going on in the meta? But when they go to their local game store, they're still going to see a lot of different experimentation. Sure. The flavor of the week, absolutely. Yeah, they, they're going to take whatever, you know, if it's a super spiky game store, they might see like what you said, like maybe people are sleeving up a whole, you know, Simic Urza deck. Or maybe they're playing some white red enchantment based deck just for kicks, right? I think that's something that I think people can still take whatever they like and have fun with it. And like you said, have a very good chance of going 4-0 at their LGS. But I think that what we are seeing is a little bit more consolidation around the competitive realm. Sure. Where I think there are fewer and fewer outliers. I don't know if the math actually backs me up, but this is is definitely a, a feels type thing. And, you know, I agree with you, Shane. And to me, I think this is no different than an average result bracket. Uh, in a format that isn't being just like decimated by something like Hogak or Bridgevine or KCI, like something really, truly fundamentally broken. And the difference is just the top 10 decks are a little different now than they were two years ago. But even two years ago, I think you still saw like the same 10 decks, you know, cycling for whatever the tier zero is. Yeah, I think what's interesting is I think when we lose some of the decks that we expect to see, even on the SEG circuit, like traditional Jund is basically nowhere. We had like two Jund pilots made make day two. I think like Death Shadow decks are just basically the Thoughtseize deck of choice right now because they back it up with the faster clock and then the disruption of stubborn denial like we talked about earlier. And you can even run Goyf if you want to in there. So it's it's sort of like what is Jund really doing better than Great Death Shadow, and especially because their removal has such bad parity against a lot of the Wurza decks too. So it's like, eh. yeah, I think we're seeing some big inevitability decks like Amulet Titan, sure, like Urza, Eldrazi Tron, where Eldrazi Tron, where it's the like Amulet Titan, especially when it adds Field of the Dead. Now it has the power of Once Upon a Time, so the the long game can be super awesome, as well as the explosive starts of Amulet Titan. You know, the the Urza decks just have so much value packed into so many of their cards. But we still see things like Green Tron, Burn, able to get the job done as well competitively. You know, like, like we mentioned earlier, the MTGO grinders seem to be loving Etron. It's consistent. It's powerful. Even Infect. I think the fact that Infect is putting up results is kind of refreshing because this is a, you know, perhaps this is indicative of issues in the format where Infect style decks that have to go crazy fast to win yeah you know maybe that's a symptom but for infect players i think it's a relief because their deck was struggling for so long when you were you know in a is it phoenix meta where everyone had gut shots and lightning bolts i think this is like a response to the inevitability that i just mentioned earlier where they might be a little bit slower so we see things like devoted devastation decks like infect like crab vine they have the explosiveness that might be needed to just beat some of these decks that can't really handle someone going wide. They can't handle a creature-based combo. They can't handle the ultra-fast 
speed of infect along with the redundancy that once upon a time can offer perhaps. So I think that those that once upon a time is definitely adding something to those green based creature decks right now as well. My final thought on what I was saying earlier in Shane Stan, I think you really helped flesh out and clarify what I was saying at your local level, you can still play whatever you want. Absolutely. But I, I think at a more competitive level, things are getting questionable for me. And especially when I play online more than my local meta online, I feel like there's a lot of the same deck and a lot of the same meta. And I to really piggyback what Stan said. I feel like I have to go fast. Prison sometimes isn't fast enough in what it does and it can dirtle. So I have to play like a super fast aggro deck is what I feel to have a chance to beat these inevitable decks. So we'll see. I, I think mo- hopefully modern shakes up and this is just a phase. Modern always has them and I don't have to play aggro to have a chance anymore. Fingers crossed. All right. So I think we need to move on to Pioneer right now. So again, we have another nice amount of Pioneer data that we can use to create a picture of the current meta. So we have the Invitational, Pioneer PTQ, and a Pioneer Challenge after that. And so since we have limited time, we'll discuss primarily the Invitational and then use the PTQ and the Challenge to kind of bring things into a little bit greater focus. So let's start with the Day 2 metagame snapshot from the Invitational. We had Hardened Scales at 12% of the meta. And it's funny, as I talked about this deck just last week, right, in our Slave Believe Heave episode, but it's already changed since then. And that was already kind of its second form that we talked about last week. So, you know, its third form, probably not its final form. We'll talk about Hardened Scales in our next section a little bit. We saw Mono Green Devotion at 11%, just behind Hardened Scales. We saw Mono Black Aggro, Simic Aggro, Is It in Soul, and Simic Nexus, all about 6%. And then behind that, we had Bant Ramp, Is It Phoenix, and Mono Red Aggro at about 4%, and then a bunch of stuff uh, below that, of course. So what did our 7-1 and and better decks look like, right? So we had Mono Black Aggro with four copies, the most copies in the 7-1 and list. Would anyone else define this as kind of the breakout Pioneer deck of the weekend? For sure. Oh, absolutely. Until Ross basically posted his list that he was bringing to the Invitational, Mono Black wasn't really on my radar. It may be no. something I noticed in the deck in the 5-0 deck dumps, but I didn't necessarily consider it as one of the front runners of the competitive meta. I think kind of the removal of Veil of Summer from the format allowed them the black decks to be opened up a little bit. And then people sort of iterated and refined maybe some of those mono black vampire type decks. Yeah, exactly. For last week on the episode I was unfortunately out for, I played a vampire's deck to test it. And my overall takeaway was the, sh- the shell felt good, but maybe the Vampire's Tribal wasn't where the deck needed to go. And literally, it takes all the things I liked about the Vampire's deck and just makes it more streamlined. Soren's still a good card. I like the Vampire. Planeswalker, the big takeaway with Soren's pretty good. But it's just, this deck is so good. The, the recursive value is there. It's palpable. Oh, yeah. It's just, it's just piles. So if you're not familiar with this deck, right, it's piles of cheap, recursive black creatures with value. So you have things like your Scrap, your Scrounger your Bloodsoak Champion, your Knight of the Ebon Legion, your Night Market Lookout, um, some higher value creatures up the curve like your Murderous Rider, a nice two-for-one there, typically Rankle, Master of Pranks, another nice flying two-for-one. It's not Master of Prankle? Okay, well, I've been reading the card wrong. <laughs> you got pranked, bro. God. <laughs> Sometimes it's more than a two-for-one. Yeah, the, the aggressive nature is, you know, you also get at, at additions with the four Mutavault, the four Looter Scooters in the air, and you combine that with, like, four Fatal Push, four Thoughtseize, you get a deck that can remove key cards on the opponent's side and get that aggression down on yours. For anyone not familiar, a Looter Scooter, is what is the name of the card? Oh, Smuggler's Copter. I, I forgot myself. <laughs> 
Some people might not know. No, that's fair. So that was the four copies and the seven or one or better. We had two Is It Phoenix, which I have to be honest with you is somewhat surprising. I've been testing that deck a little bit and I'm not doing very well with it. But one of these decks had three Merfolk Secret Keeper along with kind of a singleton dig through time. And if you're not familiar with that card, what it does is you can cast the adventure side to put five cards, I believe, in a target player's graveyard. And then you can cast it back for another single blue mana to be uh, an 04, I believe. Yes. It's, it's high quality podcasting here, yeah. <laughs> so this what, what I think this card wants to be doing is kind of filling your graveyard for your dig through time, through your treasure cruise, and then you get a cheap blocker if you need it to buy time while you can then flip your thing in the ice and get your birds back from the graveyard. And the other one was pretty stock. I'm curious to see if the Secret Keeper build gets some traction and proves itself to be the way to go. I think it'd be a fun thing to test a little bit for sure. Shane, like you, I also have been testing a bit of Is It Phoenix, and similar to you, I haven't been particularly impressed with it. And I think it is maybe worth mentioning that this is a deck that I wanted to be good. I loved playing Is It Phoenix in Modern, and mm-hmm. it, you know the power level just hasn't really been there compared to what other players are doing in Pioneer. And I wonder if you can like identify any of the issues that you've been having with the deck. Is it just a matter that it's been pretty slow? slow and the spells don't do enough do you know what i mean oh do i know what you mean <laughs> so i mean it's 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 a classic is a deck which a lot of the spells are kind of spinning their wheels and getting the other spells and so but when so many of them cost two besides like your opt or your the few pieces of single mana interaction you have i think it's, i think it really does reward experience like knowing when to cast something knowing what's worth removing knowing what's actually a threat i think is super important but a lot of times with uh, Think in the Ice, there's so many fatal pushes out there. It just eats a thing. It just eats a fatal push. I think I'm liking the builds that have been adding back uh, the Crackling Drake, like the standard style list. And it was even occasionally seen in the modern because you want to just add some extra threats to your list, I think, to eat removal. But also this Merfolk Secret Keeper build is going to do a pretty good job of blocking on the ground against some of the more aggressive like mono black decks it's going to be able to put up a little wall to buy you some time and so they're going to have to choose maybe to use a fatal push on that creature to get damage through leaving your thing in the ice able to be cast in a future turn yeah i love the idea of merfolk seeker keeper eating a fatal push because it's already done the work there's no real setup involved it's so much safer to just tap out for it unlike tapping out for a thing in the ice and your defenses are blocked and i don't know about you guys but i'm not playing with force of negation and pioneer Maybe that's a mistake on my part. God, I hope you're not. (laughs) I I do just wonder whether Thing in the Ice isn't the best payoff for this type of Turbo Xerox blue-red deck. Turbo in quotes, because this is Pioneer. Turbo in quotes. I mean, I still like Phoenixes in theory. You know, putting them into the yard isn't that hard, and having some extra madness synergies is pretty cute. But I wonder if, whether it's Crackling Drake whether it's Terramander, something else entirely, if we can find a better slot to fill that's currently being occupied by Thing in the Ice. Parting thought on Turbo. How fast can a covered wagon go? (laughs) One horsepower per mile. Hmm. All right. 
So we got to move on. Uh, Hardened Scales had a couple copies that went seven or one or better. And again, like I mentioned, this is a newer build. And so they're taking some tips from the mono green devotion list. They're adding eight mana elves. Typically, they're adding voracious hydras and Vivian Arquo Rangers. So it's adding some ramp, adding some more counter payoffs. And to make room for these things, so cards like Hangerback Walker, which if you recall last week I mentioned is not being the most impressive card in this build, um, that's being moved to the side and being cut a little bit. It's making some sense to me because it's not always amazing in every matchup. You can bring it in against removal decks to get some value out of that. And I, I don't think that these two builds even were that similar. I mean, they're pretty similar, but they're not exactly the same. I think so there's the final solved version of this deck isn't quite there yet. And then we had singleton copies of Mono Green Devotion, uh, Golgari Field, which is a Field of the Dead deck designed to maximize value of cards like Hour of Promise. A Simic Aggro, which I think is a pretty sweet deck. I tested some of that this weekend. And then a Mono Red deck also went 7-1 or better. I want to take a quick look at the top 16 players' decks. Again, remember, this is based on eight rounds of Pioneer combined with eight rounds of Modern. So we had three Hardened Scales decks, two each of Mono Black Aggro, Simic Aggro, Is It in Soul, Mono Green Devotion, and then single tins of Cruel Aggro, Bant Rap, Bant Ramp, Green Black Delirium, Simic Nexus, and then Sultai Midrange with an interesting energy package. Yeah, pretty small energy package. I think it's a it's a cool addition. Not sure if it's necessary or not, but it seemed to do something. It kind of it allows uh, what is it that um Glint Sleeve Siphoner, I believe, kind of has like a little uh card advantage engine if it has energy to you to to work with. You mean Bob? Yeah, Bob-esque. Lady Bob. And again, to flush things out and just give some more context and more information to everybody, let's look at the recent Moto Pioneer PTQ Top 32. So this is the most recent thing. I think this happened actually after like Friday and Saturday of the Invitational. So people had more information on what was doing well. Yeah, so we have some decks with two or more copies we're going to name to you. Mono Black Aggro with six, and then Mono Black Vampires, an additional two. So wow, wow, wee, wow, Mono Black is very popular right now. We have Mono Green Devotion with three, Bant Field Dead with three, and then Simic Stompy with three. And then one of these was Eldrazi-based, and I have seen this Simic Stompy Eldrazi deck, and it's pretty solid. Quick question for Field of the Dead. I haven't been playing with it, been playing against it a lot. Is this a card that you guys have been respecting with your sideboards? For instance, I'm always packing Alpine Moon in my red decks because I'm just constantly afraid of either Field or nikthos but especially field yeah i don't really i haven't really faced off against it i think i'm hoping to go a little bit faster but i'm sure that with the increasing popularity of it i'm gonna have to figure out ways to be prepared no um i have not been respecting field of the dead because i am playing decks that need to go very fast and hope they don't get to activate field of the dead and finally there are two blue white tempo decks okay but i want to talk about the final event of the weekend which i think happened like on sunday after the first Friday and Saturday of the Invitational. So people were seeing what was doing well. They we So we had seven different green-based Nykthos Devotion decks in the challenge, in the top 32 of the challenge. We had six Field of the Dead decks, five Mono Black Aggro decks with three in the top eight. Mono Black Vampires took third. We had three Simic Stompy decks. Fifteen different decks were playing Once Upon a Time, right? So... We're seeing a lot of Once Upon a Time. We're seeing a lot of Field of the Dead. We're seeing a lot of Mono Black Aggro. What What do you think we're learning overall, though, from the story of the weekend? I basically see the Pioneer format in two camps right now. Big Mana that wants to go big and go long. 
or hyper aggressive that wants to stay low to the ground, cast the small creature, even a one, since that can crew a smuggler's copter. Thank you. And basically, that's what's really at war right now. Can you go fast or are you going to stumble and then let the big mana decks take over? Are you saying that these decks have inevitability and that this is maybe a direct comparison to what we just said about modern, perhaps? Obviously, there's no Urza in this format, but it seems like we're seeing you go fast or you have a plan where you can get past it. And I'm not sure I see a lot of mid-range existing. And like, of course, there are decks in the 5-0 dumps and mid-range decks can do okay in LGS, of course. But I'm saying at high levels of play, I'm not sure mid-range is really a thing right now. So here's where I think the difference is with modern. It's that modern still has control. Sure. It has mid-range. And, and some of their decks, like be it Amulet Titan, be it Storm, almost have like a combo engine. You know, some of these Wurza decks have the the Thopter Sword combo in them. And here we don't have anything that flashy. Here it's just either go really fast or make big inevitable creatures, whether it's through, you know, your Stompy package or something with like Nykthos, Green Devotion. Sure, or play an Ugin or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, Zach, I do think that Midrange has tools. And I think we did see some like green, black delirium based decks that have interesting threats. They have interesting piles of removal. They're able to play powerful planeswalkers like Frasca and Oko sure. that, that can generate card advantage and generate just value on the board while removing problematic permanents on the, on the other side. I think that those may be un, underexplored right now because people are putting the pedal to the metal. I think that, you know, I think that we're seeing things becoming more solidified which then allows answers to be picked out more smartly like right now i would think that exile based removal is primed for a resurgence so things like settle the wreckage anger of the gods maybe even flame tendrils it hits a lot of the mono black deck that can be helpful against this new up-and-comer of mono black Maybe it's not totally game-breaking, but it gives more tools to these mid-range removal piles. I agree on Settle the Wreckage. It's hard to play around, and if you bluff it, you have to respect it. Yeah, I do want to say there was an awesome play this weekend on camera where I would have walked into the Settle the Wreckage, I think. But the the player on the other side, he very smartly was like, okay, I can only attack with this uh, flipped thing in the ice and and get the damage in. It was something that, like you said, I think people have to remember what to respect now. They have to learn to respect something like an Arch- Archangel Avacyn. They have to learn to respect something like a Settle the Wreckage because you can walk into things that you're not familiar with in this format. I think a good rule of thumb is if your opponent has cards in hand and at least four to five mana up, <laughs> proceed with caution. Yes. So I think that, like you said, Stan, aggro's in a good place. Mono black is there. It's both disruptive and aggressive. It's recursive. It's redundant. It gets to play things like Smuggler's Copter. The green-based aggressive decks get to leverage up, you know, up to eight mana elves, get to leverage once upon a time. Those are still dang good. You know, we have Scales, Simic aggro, Green Devotion, even like a Gruel aggro deck did well this weekend. Those are definitely setting like the aggressive pace. And we see still, is it in Soul? Some mono red decks still showing up. But I think that the Field of the Dead decks are becoming more popular. People are identifying this inevitability in these decks and building it in different ways. I'm mildly afraid of seeing more of those without being able to outpace them and outpace the removal that they run. I'm curious to see how Wizards of the Coast will continue to kind of want to ban aggression out of the format, maybe. 
until mid-range and control are more playable. We didn't see them act on Smuggler's Copter. We didn't see them act on Once Upon a Time. So I really hope that they let the format and the players, more importantly, uh, they have to. The the players are the people who are setting the, the tone and setting what the meta actually looks like. And so I'm curious to see if people are going to start establishing the control decks better, establish the mid-range bet decks better. That's my hope, because I don't want them just to ban aggro until like Grim Flare is finally playable, right? I'd rather see that be happen more organically. Yeah, I totally agree. I would hate to see Smuggler's Copter go. That card just, it doesn't see enough play. It's so fun. It is powerful. I don't think it slots in any deck, but it does slot in a big umbrella of a certain style of deck. So I like that it's versatile. But I can also see that maybe causing its demise eventually. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about that in our dive down section. My final thought, ban cards until Sarkon Fireblood is playable. Well, there you have it, folks. We've drawn a line in the sand. We're going to take a quick break now. And when we return, we are diving into the history of modern bands, some key moments in time. Stay with us. So over the break, we all flipped our chairs backwards for a classic dive-down rap session as we take you down memory lane, talk about the past, and try to learn about the future. Teachers out, you have three subs. A little unusual, but it's the way it's happened today at Dive Down University. So with the Pioneer bands hitting us every Monday, there's a lot of discussion about why certain cards are banned, why cards aren't on the ban list at all, why cards aren't even being considered. So... What we're going to do is we're going to analyze some of the wording used in the BNR announcements from a few different eras of modern and unpack literally what it was that Wizards of the Coast and R&D said at the time about why a card was deemed too good or too problematic to be played. So hopefully these four different bannings we go over will give you tools to become better at knowing why a card is bannable in a term or you know having a better idea of what to look out for or just understanding what a problematic card is or what problematic card properties are. I think also there's so many conversations that happen around bands right now. It's good to come in a little bit equipped with some background information to kind of have you bring some thoughts to the conversation that people might not be thinking about. There's been a little bit of a feel of kind of a a whack-a-mole where people are just sort of wanting to respond to strong decks with bands. And I think when we look over these four different bands from the past eras, we can kind of learn what happened and you can be a little bit more thoughtful in your conversations because everyone likes a thoughtful, gentle person. And I personally think it's important to convey up top that we're not planning to speculate on which cards will be banned or present a recipe of criteria that determines what we think is or is not safe for modern or pioneer. But rather, understanding the history of bands based on the information that Wasi shares with us could help inform your decisions as a player, maybe even your decisions as a buyer, and it might start to help you identify trends ahead of other competitors. So if nothing else, it might even help you illuminate how we got to modern as it stands today. Awesome. Looking forward to it. And just a bit of timely context, 2019 has been a very tumultuous year. So far, to date, Modern has lost four cards, one of which was even released this year. You guys remember Hogak? I keep telling you no. I don't know what you're talking about. And in contrast, 2018 had no bans. In fact, it had two unbans. So we're going to talk about the format's first ban and restricted announcement shortly. 
But apart from a very impactful initial sweep of bands, 2019 has already had more bands than any other one year of modern. It's also had more bands than any other one year of Pioneer. When you're right, you're technically right. So a quick disclaimer before we go into these. I'm the one who picked out these bannings. So if you're upset, email me directly. You'll you'll know how to reach me. I will. So I tried to pick these four uh, over a good view of the way bands take place across the spectrum of modern. So this is missing Splinter Twin. This is missing when they ban the Delve cards. This is missing Bloodbraid Elf. It's missing a lot of stuff. This isn't a comprehensive list. It's not meant to be. I chose these because they are pretty distinct from one another and the reasons they were banned. And they are roughly two, three years apart. So it's not like likely that one of the bands affected one another or the factoring behind banning one card factored in three years later banning another card. Mm-hmm. Also noted that Modern's had a ton of interesting unbans. And I think that's something we might be able to cover on a future episode. Maybe even something gets unbanned in Pioneer. Maybe the Fetchlands one day. Oh, God, I hope not. <laughs> no. <laughs> when they just cancel Modern. <laughs> Moving on. So we're going to start with the very first ban-restricted announcement, which happened in September 2011. So what got banned here was Blazing Shoal, Cloud Post, Green Sun Zenith, Ponder, Preordain, and Rite of Flame. So since most of these are cards it's likely that you haven't played with, here's just some very quick refreshers on what these cards did and what decks they were in. Blazing Shoal was cut to make Infect less consistent, as at the time, this card was setting up very frequent turn two and turn three kills via Inkmoth, Nexus, or Blighted Agent. Cloudpost is a common land for a while. I believe it was even pauper legal. And as a result, it can be a bit of an unassuming card, but it also allowed big mana strategies to produce as much as 15 mana by turn four. Emrakul on turn four sounds fair and fun to me. I would, I would play that. Green Sun's Zenith is one of those cards that people actually often ask to get removed from the ban list. But it was initially added because it was just too good at doing too many things, essentially coalescing just about every green ramp strategy in the early days of modern and discouraging deck diversity. Ponder and Preordain get grouped together because they're very similar cantrips and both appeared in half of the top eight of the first ever modern pro tour. They were ultimately cut for a similar reason as Green Sun's Zenith, being too good at what they do and discouraging diversity of other cantrip style effects and finally right of flame was a hyper efficient ritual style effect that produces extra mana quickly giving combo strategies similar to modern gift storm very fast kills far too consistently what i wouldn't give for this card in prison but moving on so this is the passage we're going to be looking at and this is the exact text that wizards wrote that we're going to be looking over and you know getting the takeaway from so before pro tour philadelphia the DCI stated guideline for the modern format was to avoid having decks that consistently win the game on turn three. We are tweaking that goal to not having top tier decks that consistently win on turn three or earlier. We are also having the goal of maintaining a diverse format. So a big takeaway right here is when people say a turn four format, that is literally from here. This is where that began. That is an official real thing. So that is a good rule for keeping in mind for other decks, or if a deck is consistently winning on turn three or earlier, it is breaking the literal foundational banning rule of modern. Also, it's why some decks like Grizzlebrand and Ad Nauseam are okay, because those decks can win on turn two sometimes, but inconsistently, and they're easy to disrupt. So it's not that a deck can't ever win before turn four. Of course, decks can, and there'll be things that happen, but it's a matter of being able to consistently do so. Yeah, Neoform, I think, enters that mix as well. And one of the things that stuck out to me from this very first Pro Tour result and the BNR that followed was that we start to see very early iterations of 
seemingly classic modern strategies that still exist today. Splinter Twin won the event. Infect was in the top eight. Affinity, something that kind of looks like Storm. You could even compare the Cloud Post decks to today's Tron and Titan strategies. So to me, this BNR doesn't read as an admonishment of the decks themselves, but the speed of execution and consistency that they have access to. So perhaps it's more than making modern a turn four format in quotes, but rather making modern a format where people have to play a little bit more fairly. Yeah, I think I agree with kind of both points. I think that to me, this was kind of just the initial pass, like getting rid of all the absurd stuff like cloud post, blazing shoal, um, and also the hyper consistency building engines of ponder and preordain. But it makes me kind of think like, it's just kind of weird how years later, we lose things like Oath of Nyssa, right? Which has been compared to Ponder. When you increase the consistency of already powerful decks, I think that's a dangerous thing for a game that's founded ultimately on variance and trying to control that within reason by both your deck building and your play skill. And so I think that's something that you can keep your eyes open for. Like people have been talking about once upon a time because of the consistency that it brings to decks that play lots of green creatures, plays mana dorks to ramp out turn three plays on turn two. And so that's why people, I think, have been talking so much about it. It's not just because it cheats on mana on turn one, but mainly because of how easy it is to slot into a green-based creature deck and in how much it increases the consistency of both your mana and the creatures that you that you want to be putting into the, under the battlefield. Yeah, absolutely. And just another point to really hammer on here is the explicit text of we have the goal of maintaining a diverse format. So this is when people say, hey, this deck is 30% of the format. And you go, why is that a problem? Because they explicitly say they do not want a format that is like that. So that is why, you know, when people say things like, oh, this is a big deal. It is a big deal, not because of some sort of community agreed thing or some sort of unspoken rules. It is the foundation of the format of modern. I think it's also important that context matters to some extent. And even if a deck takes 30% of a meta share in one weekend's tournaments, that's not the immediate death knell for that deck, right? Sometimes players have the opportunity to respond. Maybe it's a blip because something broken was found and no one had a chance to innovate quickly enough, but that doesn't necessarily indicate that a deck is overpowered. Really time and data and the consistency of collecting data over time I think is kind of what helps R&D inform their BNR decisions. Sam, that, that just so perfectly said. And I think it really just really sums up this first banning thing, which is consistency. If your deck is consistently doing something broken continuously, it's bannable. It's really what it comes down to. Or at least doing it consistently on turns two and three. It's, yeah, especially so. Moving on to the second one we'll be going over, the second ban, which is the eggs ban, quote unquote, which happened in May 2013. And in this one, the card banned was Second Sunrise, which is a card we've mentioned on this podcast before. But for anybody unfamiliar, it's a pretty old card. It is one two white for an instant. Each player returns to the battlefield all artifact, creature, enchantment, and land cards in their graveyard that were put there this turn. So this is where my classic expression, you can't make a modern format without cracking some eggs, comes from. I do say it on every episode. It usually gets cut out. We have it on Whoopi Cushion that we've been giving out at like press events and stuff. For those unfamiliar, 
the old eggs deck was similar to today's paradoxical outcome strategies, wherein you play a bunch of cheap artifacts, draw your whole deck, and you win very slowly off of Pyrite Spellbomb getting cast over and over. Something that I think tickles me is that one of the pilots that was famous for abusing this strategy was Stanislav Sifka, the other Stanislav. Hey, that's you. Almost. Almost. So the relevant passage that we're going to be referring to and is what inspiring this. So a win might involve casting Second Sunrise so many times that the entire library is drawn and the only cards put back with Conjurer's Bobble are left. A single turn might take 15 minutes or more. In a large tournament, such as a Grand Prix, when time for the round expires, players are given five additional turns to complete their game. Usually, this takes a few minutes to conclude the rest of the games. However, a player playing eggs might have a 15-minute turn during the additional turns, delaying the start of the next round by 10 minutes or more beyond the next longest match. Over the course of a day, this can mean an extra hour of waiting around for everyone else in the tournament. I, In my experience, this is no longer a quote. It often is more than an hour when decks like this are around. Yeah. So the big takeaway for me from here, and I'm, I can't wait to hear what my co-host have to say about this, is that a deck doesn't have to be too good, meaning it doesn't have to be consistently putting up top results. It can take too long, or it can create unfun game states. So the biggest issue, like we mentioned, are when games go when turns are announced. So, you know, usually, you know, sometimes a control matchup that can go and people are really thinking about what their out is and if they can get the damage in. But sometimes a player can be spinning their wheels and it's not slow play because they're progressing the game state still. And they're not in some sort of loop or anything like that. So this is something that I had referenced about why I don't particularly like Urza is because the games can go very long sometimes. And I've even been in a tournament with Stan and Dave where an extra turn went very long because a player was spinning their wheels and trying to get a combo off and they can't just stop and they can't loop it. So they got to play it out. Yeah. I mean, Zach, we've actually talked about this before um, in chat. I think I'm kind of of the opinion that bands like these almost have to be tied up with power level in some way, because I don't know a lot of players are going to deal with like physically manipulating their deck for 15 minute turns if it wasn't also quite powerful. So in in the case of of uh you know the second sunrise deck, I think that that had a lot of inherent power level to make people want to play it. Kind of kind of like KCI, right? Where there's a lot of inherent power level. Spoiler alert, KCI is number 4. Oh, well dang. Let's let's not let's not jump to the gun a little bit. In the business, we call that a tease. I think we do call that a tease in the business. Yeah, what do you think about that? Do you think that Second Sunrise was like was was so good that people would deal with the annoying play patterns? So, if you look back at results, it was very well represented, but not overtly so, and not the numbers we saw today. So, I think the power level was there. Maybe it wasn't the best deck, but it was good in a certain kind of way. And I think certain people do like that style of deck. Like we see, where's a popular, and people legitimately enjoy playing it. I think that can't be accounted for all the players, obviously, just for a part of them. But I think that it wasn't too good it just was good and took too long i think it's one of those things where like watsy probably isn't like monitoring for decks that take too long for their turns unless there's like enough people causing problems that they need to act in some way shape or form yeah like it would take a bunch of people bringing words to do a huge tournament and every round going long and then people doing it again right because it has to be like you're saying it is a lot of work to shuffle these cards and it is a lot of work to sit here and pull off these combo and like Make sure you don't get a rules violation because you tap something that you couldn't or put a card somewhere you shouldn't have, right? So it's a lot of commitment to do, so the power level has to be there. But a deck can be, in my opinion from this reading and what I'm getting from here, it can be acceptable at a power level, but just so annoying that it has to be gotten rid of. 
So I'm curious what your personal thresholds are for what's egregious in this regard. And what's the difference between a deck that just goes to time consistently, like maybe something like blue-white control or you know a dirtily control strategy in general, versus something that's eating up a bunch of time when it's in turns? Do, do you think personally that if a deck is constantly going to time, that might be enough to you know make it problematic under these criteria, under the second sunrise criteria? I think that for me, it crosses the line because magic has a built-in shortcut, at least in paper, for this, which is you're demonstrating a loop. I'm doing a loop right now. So the thing that could take a long time is it'll be shortened down. I think when a deck doesn't have that sort of deterministic loop and you can't say I'm doing something because you're drawing cards in a way that isn't reliable or you're you know sacrificing something that isn't exactly loopable if you don't get the right thing, I think that for me is where I personally draw the line because that is to me, breaking the rules or acting outside of how magic is supposed to be. And this is just my opinion, but I think that I don't like dirtily decks like that in modern. I mean, I, I've been rallying against Urza ever since it existed pretty much. But to me, that is not the sort of magic that I particularly enjoy or want to play against or watch. Yeah, do you think there's, is Urza the closest thing we have to like a contemporary, you know, risk for dirtling too much or is that mainly only the paradoxical version i think the paradoxical version or the ascendancy version can dirtle a little bit when you're trying to like chain cards in a way where it's important and you can whiff on a draw because the whole thing is it's not deterministic if you can whiff like the, the loop isn't a loop if it has a chance of not looping so yeah. i i think when decks like that exist where it's uh, pick everything up draw 20 cards uh, crap, I have to do it again. So I have to play all these cards out again to do it to hope I get the thing next time. That to me rings alarm bells and sort of just like not the sort of magic that I thought I signed up for in modern, but maybe that's why I'm playing Pioneer now. Is this the way you announced to the world that you've retired as a modern player and sold your invocation of Blood Moons? Mm, I have not sold them. I would never do that. But I did change my name on the Slack to not the Warden anymore. So let that mean what it means. Whoa. Let that mean what it means. Moving on to our third ban, and a pretty lengthy one, we have the Eldrazi Winter of April 2016. So what got banned here was the Eye of Ugin, which is a land that doesn't actually tap for mana, but can somehow maybe kind of produce a lot. So for those unfamiliar, or for those who would just like a refresher of the nightmare we lived in for a little bit, Eye of Ugin, legendary land, colorless Eldrazi spells you cast cost two less to cast. So this doesn't produce mana, but it makes cards cost two less. And sometimes Eldrazi only cost two, so they cost zero. Or sometimes they cost one. Very good. Also, this other ability, because why the heck not? Seven of any color, tap. Search your library for a colorless creature card. Reveal it, put it into your hand, and then shuffle your library. Ivugan doesn't sack to do it. It can just keep doing it. This card is very, very good. Oh, that's crazy. All right, so it's my turn to read the relevant passage, Zach. This is, this is all me. So... Uh, Watsi in the band announcement said, while the Eldrazi decks have lot have a lot of powerful cards, the powerful draws are generally based on the mana acceleration, out of quote, that you mentioned, from Eldrazi Temple and Eye of Ugin. So rather than ban multiple creatures, we find it preferable to ban a single land. We made our choice by examining how one would build a deck and how it would play with the land that remains legal. So then they give uh, one, they give two bullet points. So bullet point one, if Eldrazi Temple is banned and Eye of Ugin is legal, the deck focuses on playing multiple lower casting cost Eldrazi per turn. A discount for two mana for each Eldrazi becomes a discount of four or more over the course of a turn. The deck becomes more explosive, more focused on a single build, and the powerful draws are still not interactive. 
And then bullet point two, if I of Ukin is banned and Eldrazi Temple is legal, the mana supports a more diverse set of builds. There still is a small percentage of games with two Eldrazi Temples powering out huge plays. However, there are more games where only one temple is drawn and the deck is powerful yet beatable. Personally, I love that they had those two bullets and kind of walked us through how they made this decision and how it's based on the different versions that this deck can take depending on what gets banned. Because it seems to me from reading this that R&D essentially decided that something getting banned is a foregone conclusion this deck is too powerful. And likewise, I almost feel like the way they describe it and the decision they made in the end was handled with care. Right To them, it was important that the deck stays viable, that people get to hold on to their powerful new Eldrazi. Remember, these cards had just been printed in Oath of the Gatewatch, so it was a pretty fresh strategy. Mm -hmm. And even though it had taken over Modern, uh, it led to an entire dark season called Eldrazi Winter. It was important to them that we're not admonishing the deck. We're just acknowledging that there is a card that makes the deck outside of the power level that we want for this format, that we have been cultivating and curating for this format for years at this point absolutely and this is really helpful for moments when a deck might have one or two or three busted cards in it and you think okay they're not going to ban all these cards which one goes so we see that broken stuff is allowed in modern and that's implicit here where sometimes there's two Eldrazi temples and you have a turn two thought not seer i'm sorry good for you you've earned it you know what good for you you worked hard on that you probably mulliganed a hand and got lucky and that's important so it's not that you can't do broken stuff, but you can't consistently do it. And you, we do not want you to have these enormous turn one or two plays where you go, my hand's on the table, what are you doing? And Affinity can do that, but not as consistently. And artifacts are easier to disrupt than just creatures and lands. I feel like this has pretty big implications in the contemporary environment, both in modern and in pioneer. Because I feel like you know when there's two similarly powerful cards deciding what gets banned if anything is is a big decision for wizards of the coast because like you look at like say the simic urza decks right now right and they may be winning because of just the raw value of urza in terms of the you know making things into mock sapphires making the large construct you know having the just the board value but also people mentioned that they win on the back of oko and his extreme power level in Pioneer, we have these mono-green devotion decks that were outrageously good out of the gate because they had a number of different redundant pieces. They have Lanawar Elves and Elvish Mystic. They have Once Upon a Time and Oath of Nyssa. They have Nykthos and Leyline of Abundance for mana acceleration. So we've seen Watsi making their selections on Pioneer bands in a way that could be described as targeted in the same way as targeting Eye of Ugin. You know, Leyline of Abundance went instead of Nykthos, because that allowed devotion strategies and other colors to still be playable in Pioneer. So there was a second sort of bonus lesson that we got along with this banning, and there was a whole section where they talked about how banning Eye of Ugin, while they thought was the right choice because it gutted this deck, also had sort of splash damage or other effects in cross decks in the format. So the relevant passage... We also considered that Eye of Ugin is played in other decks, most notably, and in quotations, Tron decks, using Urza's power plant in similar lands. While the Eye does add a lot of late game power to the deck, the core gameplay of the deck, casting large threats with the Tron lands, remains intact. It is regrettable that banning Eye of Ugin also impacts these Tron decks, but weighing everything in consideration, 
We feel this is a correct solution to the Eldrazi menace and makes modern the most fun overall. That is real copy from the Wizards website. They said Eldrazi menace. You know what breaks my heart? Tron was never seen or heard from again. <laughs> yeah, poor Tron. It Please, just, man. if you've seen Tron, call the number on your phone probably right now. It, it's also, there's a photo of Tron on the side of most milk cartons. <laughs> what does Tron look like to you, Stan? So I think that's kind of a good takeaway that you brought up there, Zach, right? It's like they, they Wasi does consider the splash damage that's caused by banning a card that's making one strategy pretty broken, but it's run as a good card or a powerful payoff or something in other decks as well. And this is something going back to that mono green devotion deck in Pioneer, where I see something like Oath of Nyssa being in consideration because they chose Oath of Nyssa over once upon a time, probably for a number of reasons, but also because the splash damage on losing Oath of Nyssa was fairly limited to only other potentially problematic multicolored Planeswalker decks, uh, Golos-type strategies. So I think they were saying Once Upon a Time is going to be used in, in many, many green decks. Oath of Nyssa is potentially in fewer of them. And if we take out Oath of Nyssa, then we're going to lose the enabler for like these four-color Planeswalker decks that might be a little bit too pushed. Uh, the Golo strategy might be a little bit too powerful. So let's take out Oath of Nyssa, leave Once Upon a Time for now, see what happens. So, Zach, you were playing Modern at this point, right? Yes, I was. I absolutely was. Shane, were you? During Eldrazi? Yeah, for sure. Can you guys share a little bit about what the before, during, and after of Eldrazi Winter felt like? What happened to the meta immediately after the banning? What was the format like before Eldrazi got printed? Do you remember the attitude of players when Eldrazi Winter was in full swing? So, at this time, I was playing Scred. Obviously, this was three years ago. I was playing Scred. I was doing okay at a local level, but the Eldrazi decks were still really good because Blood Moon on turn three is not enough against these decks like they're talking about. The Eye of Ugin is so explosive that you have to have hate right away. And Even stuff like Scred and Bolt was getting outclassed because it's really hard to Scred and Bolt a Thought Not Seer or a Reality Smasher, especially when they come down very quickly. So for me, this was a time when I was not playing as much modern and was playing a lot of standard because I felt like Scred's not very good. I don't have the ability to audible into other deck. My collection's pretty small and limited to EDH and modern cards. So I'm going to go ahead and just play some standard and see what else is going on right now. So for me, like how many other people were in that situation where they just stopped playing modern for a while because at their local level, they could not get into another deck that was viably competitive. I honestly don't remember what the heck I was doing. I remember I went to a regionals event in Chicago when I still lived there. I brought Burn because I always just audible to Burn when I go to tournaments, apparently. And I remember that was the weekend when the, the like the first version of the Eldrazi decks showed up. I think it might have been before the Pro Tour and like the the black white if I remember correctly, based Eldrazi decks uh, started coming out of the woodwork and then they were pretty quickly refined to something more powerful. And I must have just taken a pretty long break from modern. Like, I think I remember drafting a lot more during that time period. Like, I think we, um, I was going to a, a local game store with some friends. I think we were having just some like events at people's houses. I don't remember playing a lot of modern then until they banned Ivugan. And I don't even remember when I started playing modern again because my memory is trash because I'm old, Stan. I'm in my late 30s. Things start fading. 
for what it's worth, this ban uh, required me to buy four Cure Master of the Depths because that was the deck that I ran in standard blue-green ramp. That was how far I had fallen. <laughs> it sounds to me like one of the consequences of a deck being so overly represented and so overly powerful is as tangible as people just stop playing a format. And I think this can potentially influence how and why Watsi decides to make BNR decisions as well. If distributors or LGS owners or people on Twitter are starting to hear and relay this news that people are just losing interest in an entire format, clearly those, those aren't conditions that I think R&D wants to sustain. I mean, let's look at standard right now. I mean, they made they made a number of bands. They made three today. They made some earlier with Field of the Dead. Standard is so unfun. SCG last minute changed a tournament from being standard to being pioneer. Yeah, and so like that's the kind of I mean, when 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 a format is clearly so unenjoyed that GPs have like three hundred fifty players or things like that. You know, the writing's on the wall that something's going to change, and it did today. Today, Zach, we have we have one more right one of one of my favorites. <sighs> We have a card that I don't think I still know exactly how it works, just that it frustrates me, and a judge told me it did what it did. Man, I was playing in this era. We all were. We were all friends at this point. And I still had to reread the card and look at a couple old CFB articles just to remember (laughs) how the deck worked, because it was so degenerate and confusing. We're talking about Kirk Clan Ironworks in January 2019, when this podcast existed. Yeah, we were fresh-faced little content creators. I've grown seven feet since then. It's been, doctors are worried. <laughs> we now all have beards. We aged very quickly. It's, it's, please someone help us. Yeah, so what, the way this deck worked was not unlike the second sunrise egg strategy, right? People called this deck eggs. Yeah, you could sacrifice cheap artifacts to KCI. Uh, you could basically create loops that would allow people to win through things like pyrite spell bombs. It was incredibly hard to interact with because KCI is a mana ability, and that doesn't use the stack in the same way that like tap abilities or triggered abilities work. So if you don't remember exactly, uh, it's a four mana artifact. And base, and what it allows you to do is sacrifice an artifact and make two colorless mana. So the concept, the conceit behind the card is that you're throwing in an artifact to make two mana out of it. So that just clearly allowed you to break the game in a lot of ways because there's so many cheap artifacts. You're, you're advancing your mana through things like Mox Opal, uh, through things like you know Engineered Explosives because you can cast it for zero. And you're generating mana while also using, like I mentioned earlier, a mana ability that allows you to cheat the stack a little bit. When the card finally got banned in January of this year, Wizards wrote, Games with Krark Clan Ironworks can often involve excessively arcane rules interactions using mana ability timing windows, the understanding of which are necessary for players to agree on the game state. This can create a barrier to entry to modern players playing against the deck and to those who would feel obligated to play with it because of its strong win rate. We're sensitive to community feedback that the combination of polarized matchups, complex interactions, and long turns can lead to unenjoyable gameplay and viewing experiences. And Shane, I feel like this is a really good lesson that builds upon what you mentioned in the eggs discussion we had a little bit ago, where 
if if the deck is so very good and difficult to play, aren't are gonna be, a bunch of people going to want to play it? And this is, hey, we're so afraid of that, that this deck is so very good. Everybody's, everybody's going to be sacrificing artifacts and weird windows and having priority when they shouldn't, that we don't want to have this exist. Yeah, we need to agree upon the game state. And if one person sees it as like a plasma yeah. and the other person sees it as like a gaseous form, that's just that's not going to work towards fun gameplay. I think that's actually, this gets to a point that people like Mark Rosewater have been pretty public about, which is that Magic should fundamentally be a fun game. Yes. Right? And if players feel obligated to play with a pretty unfun deck because it's so good that they're going to bring it to the table, and then that subjects people to play against it. And if it's pretty confusing because... I mean, Wizards uses the term excessively arcane, which I think is maybe a little bit of a stretch, but <laughs> it's still there. You have to understand like the mana ability timing windows. There's a lot of like loops that people can be like, here's how this works. And you're like, well, I don't really get it. Can you explain it to me? And that takes like a couple of minutes. And those kind of interactions aren't fun for people on both sides of the table. Especially when you as a player feel like you might not be getting the full truth and have to call a judge and then the judge has to explain it to you. And then you feel like I don't get this. And I part of me feels like I'm being duped or cheated somewhere. And you're not. That's how the game works. But you feel that way. And it's really hard to shake that feeling of like, I feel like I get magic. I've been playing for a really long time. I'm pretty good at the rules. But what you're explaining to me is not magic as I understand it. Yeah. And I think that puts both players again in an unfun and bad spot where it's like players shouldn't be punished for being very good and very experienced with a game and understanding KCI, right? So they're, they're on the other side of the table saying, well, this person doesn't understand these rules that I do. But I also have some empathy here because, yes, this is fairly complicated. And the other, and the person on the other side of the table is feeling what you just explained, which is, well, should I understand this? I mean, I've had experiences, I'm sure we all have, where I had to call a judge on something where it's just like, I feel like I should know this rule, but I don't. And so I guess I'm going to call a judge to have it explained to me. And it makes me feel kind of dumb. And the player on the other side is like, why are we wasting the, this time? And multiply that by 10 you know, ten, 10 times the number of rules interactions and judge calls for KCI games. It's just like, this isn't fun for the judges or the players involved. This deck is complicated to the point of silliness and it's too good at what it's doing. So it just hit all these boxes. And yet it took them, what, like four, five, six months to act on it? Because I think it had to reach that threshold we were talking about earlier, where it's not just that the deck is unfun, it goes too long but it also reached a certain threshold of power level that enough people were being subjected to this experience. So those two aspects of, you know, the, the conditions of a format and and the fun of a playing experience were really working in tandem against KCI. What it also, this gets to, I think behind the scenes, and this is something that I've been trying to pay a lot of attention to in the years that I've been playing modern is the more information we have, like, uh, Channel Fireball has been really good with publishing data since they've been running the the GPs. And we get a whole bunch of data dump, right? And we're saying, okay, here's what the win percentages of these decks is looking like. So we can say things like, well, KCI was in the high 50s, you know, to, to the low 60s at some points in certain tournaments of win rate. And when you get to that level, I think is when Watsi really starts paying attention. I don't think they want decks to be at a win rate that is that high because then it does make players start flocking to the deck 
in really high numbers because it, they don't have a choice competitively to play other things when they go to tournaments. No, I totally agree. And I think this is why something like a deck like Prison, which is a deck that I'm a big fan of, but people think is really unfun to play against, can exist. Because it's not constantly putting up big results and it's more of a rarity that you see or someone's pet deck evolved. So it's not that decks can't, you know, fun's a sub- fun is a very subjective word, right? And what is fun for one person is not fun for the other. I enjoy a turn one Blood Moon. People don't, and I get that. But on the same note, turn one Blood Moons aren't consistently good all the time, aren't creating deterministic loops, and aren't relying on some sort of rules interaction that's bizarre. It can be disrupted. It can be worked around. It's not fun, but it's not, hey, I turn one Blood Moon, and you know that you lose now, right? Yeah, that's a good point, Zach. Sometimes it is that, but... That's on your opponent for having a greedy mana base. Listen, if you run two big sticks and looking at you, Grace's Death Shadow, then you deserve to lose to a turn one Blood Moon. Please at me. So the big takeaway for this one for me, and I think something that's good to note, and hopefully it doesn't come up again in Magic because they can maybe avoid it, but to be aware, taking advantage of strange timing windows and doing things that generally break the game or play Magic as we don't conventionally understand to be played are bannable offenses, especially if you are consistently doing them. Once again, nothing of itself one time or one tournament is enough to raise a ban flag. But when things are consistently acting outside of maybe the box we know is magic, that's problematic. Also, being so unfun to play that people stop wanting to play modern or people don't want to watch tournaments, also bannable. For sure. I think we talked a lot about like why why a deck like KCI is pretty bannable. And I think that that's a good way to sum it up. Visit the records. View the archives. So I don't know if this is new of this year because we kind of kicked off 2019 with such a big ban being KCI in January. Maybe it's because we're so hyper-connected to the community lately that I feel like I hear a lot of it more often. But I'm curious, and, and you can disagree with my premise as well, why do you think people like talking about bans so often? For me, it is similar to why people like talking about patches like in fighting games, specifically Smash Brothers, things like that. Any change that fundamentally shakes up the game as you come to understand it is huge. And that might require you not being able to do what you did anymore. Maybe the character you played or the the card you used is not usable because of how they've changed it or removed it. Maybe the matchup you thought was so great and the tournament you're going to go crush, now that matchup is gone because of something that was changed. So I think people are so obsessed with it because there's nothing that alters magic in the same way it is wholly unique and wholly powerful yeah i also think to zach i think it's a good point by the way but i think also people look at magic a lot of times as a puzzle to be solved and i i think if you look at bands as pieces to maneuver and levers to turn and things to you know slot in where other things used to be there's like a there's a final perfect version of a format that exists out there. And it's up for Wizards of the Coast, the players. You know, we're all there to participate in this particular problem to be solved through manipulation of the card pool and manipulation of decks that may be designed to beat the most powerful deck. So I think that's part of the great puzzle that exists. And so that's like a nice way to look at it, right? Is that everyone's looking for the most fun to be had in a format. But I think, like you said earlier, Zach, is people's definitions of fun don't always align. And in fact, I'd say they, they maybe misalign more often than they, than they align. And so I, I, I think that perhaps more honestly, 
I think people like talking about bans because it's way easier to think about eliminating something as a solution than creating something as a solution. So I think that is an example of Pioneer where we're seeing more bans is I'm fearful that people want to subtract from the format to create what they see as something more fair than they are perhaps willing right now to say, well, how do I solve this current environment? And that's mainly because the environment is so unknown and so in flux. But I think that people need to remember that we dealt with decks like Grixis Death Shadow, decks like Humans being tier zero, tier one for you know six months at a time before, and nothing ever got banned out of those. Right, and there's always a the discussion of Decks are allowed to be good, right? There's always there's always going to be a best deck, and it's about if it breaks these key consistent principles we're trying to go over here. Is the deck consistently being broken early? Is the deck making games go too long? Is the deck making modern unfun? And something like humans didn't really break any of those rules, right? It wasn't winning the game consistently before turn four. It wasn't making games go super long. It wasn't making modern unfun. So that's an example of like, yeah, a deck can be good, but decks are allowed to be good. And as long as it's not ruining things, people will eventually find ways to work with it. Yes. So something that sticks out to me is seemingly anytime a deck wins a big tournament, some contingent of players say that that has crossed the line. And, you know, maybe I'm inflating my memory, but I seem to recall when Bogles won a GP last year or when... um What's that lantern deck? I think it's just called lantern. Lantern control. Yeah, lantern. When that one people- that, that turned into KCI. Yeah, I mean, and sort of. Sort of. I why well, I believe that. I believe in evolution. But people can play lantern today. That deck still exists. Yeah, you can, you, you, yeah, you can sleep up lantern. Yep. And people likewise were saying that should be banned. And I wonder, and and please tell me if you think I'm being too cynical. If one of the reasons people like talking about bans so much is because they think bans are the key to helping them win more. And they think it's the existence of certain other decks that are preventing them from winning rather than even skill or experience. Stan, I think that the negative side of me wants to agree here. I think that the benevolent part of me will say that I think people are searching for fairness, but the definition of what is fair is highly variable. I think what people, people want to be able to feel like what they're doing on the other side of the battlefield matters. And I think what, Decks like Bogles frequently do, they frequently take away that feeling. A deck like Lantern Control, a deck like Zach mentioned, Mono Red Prison, is designed to remove your ability to play the game in the way that you're expecting to. And so when that happens, you know, if you're a removal-based deck and you play against Bogles, well, you're like, well, my entire strategy is invalidated. And Modern is a game that allows you to have your strategy invalidated a number of times. If you're a, a, a pile of removal and you play against a control deck, well, that's essentially what's happening to you. You're just not realizing it as overtly as when you're playing Bogles. Yeah, if you're playing any relevant permanent type and your opponent has Oko, then there's nothing you can do. I don't want to talk about Elks. What do you think, Zach? So, Shane, I hear what you're saying and I agree. And I have a yes and to that and to Zan's question. I think that also bans create this moment. Like, remember when Pioneer was announced and I feel like anything was possible and your little box of cards, like, open it and I guess they're all playable now? Bans create this small window where I think everyone feels like that, where it's, oh, KCI is gone and now we can do whatever we want. And it's, well, no, like, power level's still real. The, the, the tiers are going to shift around and move, but there's going to be a tier one of decks. But I feel like it creates this 
if not false illusion, then just a tremendous hope in people that like, well, now we're going to get this new thing in modern, even if it's just Tron becomes one tier higher. Now Monastery Mentor is truly playable. <laughs> Dave somewhere sleeping those buddies right back up. <laughs> so one of the other things that we had touched on was when conditions in a format are really bad because a deck is so oppressive that it might discourage players from participating in that format's events. It might even motivate tournament organizers from hosting events of a given format. So I'm curious if the bands that we've had this year in Modern, and even some of the recent Pioneer bands, but I think I know the answer to that. If the bands of 2019 have impacted your attitudes as players, and has it even shifted your relationship with the game at all? Yeah, absolutely. For me, the Faithless Looting band, I, I know that was contentious, but I liked it a lot, and it made me feel like they knew that there was some ridiculous stuff and it's only going to get more ridiculous and i liked what it did for modern and it made me feel that they don't want it to be this sort of format or they're aware of what of what it's going to become and the game states it creates and they don't want that to be what modern mostly is or what is very powerful in modern so i like when bands reaffirm me as a player and make me feel like wizards has their finger on the pulse of the format and i also in general like bands and like when cards are removed so for me, as long as it's not my deck, I'm pretty happy with it. So I, I have two parts of this answer, Stan. I think in modern, I think the bands have been good. I think that as much as I enjoyed playing Faithless Looting in some of my decks, I think it was probably a smart move. Of course, moving cards like Hogak was a smart move. Um, Bridge from Below was a weird patch on the Hogak thing, but Bridge from Below was a weird card anyway that probably shouldn't be in the format. In but what I liked about those bands is that they felt patient. You know, Hogak was around for not a ridiculously long period of time, but they gave players the chance to react to it and gave players a chance to say, can we, can we beat this besides just playing it? And when it proved to not be the case, then they removed it. My issue, on the other hand, though, the Pioneer bands have been fairly quick. And I think some of them are fine. I think it's fine to say, yeah, you know, um, the Leyland of Abundance is a little crazy. It's fine to say the Sahili Rai Felidar Guardian combo is a little bit crazy, but I'm worried that they're acting very quickly in a number of other ways. It's hard because there's not a, a good comparison to modern, because as we know, cards started on the modern ban list. So I think this is the trade-off that you have to have. If cards aren't going to start on the ban list, you have to be aggressive with the bans. Just because I think all the bans they've done so far, I like them. I'm happy. I want more. I think more cards should be banned. And I would rather have this, okay, that's too good. That's too good. Like we saw it for one week and we know that there's no way that's going to be good. And like I have a little more faith in it. And I, I think you are a little more data or analytical minded than me so i think that's maybe a, a difference we have there well I, I actually don't feel too i don't feel like this is a data analytics type thing i feel like this is a letting let the players respond a little bit they don't know what's good for them i mean we had like we had like three or four days where like mono black aggro sort of went from people are sort of talking about it to being like you know winning the majority of the top eight of the the challenge and people are already like well smugglers copter might need to go it's like let's 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 take a week let's take two weeks three weeks to say 
okay, what tools exist in this new format? Because people have to rediscover a lot of tools. Why have and- bands every week if you're not going to use them? <laughs> well, I think because you want to you have some faith in your players and have some faith that players are going to have fun. Not everyone's going to the LGS, which is where most of the magic happens, and saying, well, I'm taking Mono Green Devotion. Or I'm taking like I'm I'm taking some some busted Sahili Rifeld our Guardian deck. No, definitely. But also we're in an era where Wizards of the Coast is trying to amp up magic competitive play and have, you know, that be more of a thing that people are involved in and is more streamed, et cetera. So I think you also have to consider that. So I totally agree. At the LGS, these bands aren't as impactful. And it's maybe one dude who goes, Yeah, I have a new deck now. I don't know. But like online or like watching big events, it's nice not to see stuff that we talked about is not maybe not that very fun to watch. Stan, you asked the question. I want to hear your point of view. Uh, how's it changed your relationship with magic at all? Well, you know, the podcast really shapes my relationship with magic these days. And I'm not just saying that. Um, you know, what shapes it in? Like like a quadrangle? A, like a rhombus? It's a star. <gasps> I, I have a star too. W- which way is yours facing? To the left. Oh, my mine's upside down. So I think there's something telling in what Zach said, which is something to the tune of, I don't want my cards to be banned, but I want other cards to be banned. That, I did say that. That is true. And, and that, I think, I think there's something really pregnant there, right? Because you might feel a little differently and a little bit less ban hungry if you found that like the deck that you had been honing for a year suddenly becomes invalidated not because a card was printed but because the powers that be said you don't get to play with this anymore oh i live in constant fear of simian spirit guide being banned yeah so i i I think people's appetite for bands might change if and when they experience it firsthand Um, never happened to me you know that being said the faithless looting band was a blow because i loved playing is it phoenix and mono red phoenix but it being coupled with the stoneforge unban did two things a, it really obfuscated the data on what the format looks like moving forward because it incentivized so many people to start experimenting with this brand new technology that they just didn't have access to. It was as if they printed, what is it, seven, eight new cards between Stoneforge and and uh, the Swords. And Batter Skull. Exactly. So in that regard, normally I hate bands because they make my investments worthless and they make my practice and experience potentially worthless. Though that is also debatable because sometimes lessons learned from deck A can be applied to deck B. But I do love the feeling that the Stoneforge unban, I think, kind of created, which was now anything is possible. And it's a feeling we had for a brief window of time in modern. It's a window that we kind of are still experiencing in Pioneer. Uh, Maybe that window is shrinking a little bit, but the deck dumps are still pretty huge and pretty diverse. So my attitude has been, I still need to play the decks that people care about so that we have something to talk about on the dive down. But personally, I err on the side of Shane, which is, in general, unless something is super oppressive and warping like Hogak, where it incentivizes everyone to play for Leyline, whether or not they, they can cast it naturally, I think in general, things can be better if and when players have a little bit more time to find solutions to their problems rather than waiting for some deus ex machina solution to come from the heavens. and But it does. It does often and frequently. In Pioneer, at least. Yes. It, but that's not going to last either, right? Pioneer is very fresh. And I think there was... 
no one wants to be told they're going to die one day, Stan. Why would you do that to me? <laughs> well, like, they can't do BNRs every Monday. No one's going to want to play the format in that condition. No one's going to want to buy cards if, like, Gutter Bones is going to get banned next week. Gutter Bones. <laughs> gutter, gutter Bones. Ban Gutter, gutter Bones. <laughs> the announcement is just Gutter Bones is banned, question mark, on the website. <laughs> I just like Gutter Bones, like, taking the bullet <laughs> because it's a one-of in some mono-black decks. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Listen, Gutter Bones, we think they'll leave us alone if you just take this hit for the team. So we talked a lot about bands and we learned a few things. We made a few jokes, maybe made a few friends along the way. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to have a listener question about some things we do like with magic. Stay with us. Wayne. So we return with another question from our collaborator, friend, Englander, Emma Bartlow. Sister from another mother. From another mum. And that mum might be the queen. Stay tuned to find out. Emma asks, what is a recent card or mechanic you really appreciate the design of and enjoyed playing with? And for me, the answer is Adventures slash Bonecrusher Giant. I love this card. I've been jamming it in every deck I play that I can right now. It's really fun to have the utility of end of your opponent's turn, do something, your turn, untap, and play a creature on curve, go. And I just love the the fact that the, the adventures aren't too powerful and it's hard to interact with them, right? It's not like a flashback spell where your graveyard can be disrupted and it's, oh, that's a bummer. I kind of got burnt out there. Like, it's it's on curve. It's pretty fair for the most part. And it's kind of resilient. So you get this little two-for-one value and just get to show off. It's it's so fun. I, the other day, my giant stomped on a crab, went on an adventure, and then came back. What a day for him. See, that's that's some good flavor. Crab stomper. Yeah, I, I love this pick, Zach, because I, and, and really I agree with your point that the fun and best adventure cards are just built in two-for-ones. And they almost read to me in some cases like a very slow command cycle card <laughs> that only has two modes, but you get to do two modes if you're patient enough. Sure, sure. I got a couple showcase non-foil copies of Bone Crusher Giant myself, you know. Because I play Pioneer now. <laughs> I'm a, me, me. I'm a Pioneer boy. Stan, what's your card? You have one picked out yet? Yeah, I've, uh, I briefly fell in love with Brian Born Cutthroat. Ooh, the flash. And truth be told, I don't remember if that was C19 or C20, but it was a card that just entered my radar this year. And what was fun to me about this card was that it had been around for a while until someone cracked it in modern. And it was just, you know, like one person who was innovating this is it flash deck and like getting consistent results with them. And then they started posting reports on Reddit. They were chatting on the blue red control discord, which I pop into sometimes. And it was really cool to see like this little piece of technology had been hiding under our nose for a little bit and almost kind of rediscovering it after the fact i was like a born again brian born player b-a-b-p brian born again b-a-b-b-p basically <laughs> yeah i gotta go a little anti-fun and i have really loved karn the great creator y'all we talked a lot about karn the great creator in uh, our mono red prison episode a few months ago i love i love the sub games it creates. I love kind of the things you have to think about uh, when it hits the battlefield. Like how are you working towards winning with this card or is it just a distraction? I like the, 
the things you have to think about for how you build your deck and how you build your sideboard differently due to Karn the Great Creator. I mean, it definitely has some drawbacks, right? It, it creates a, a lock in a way that if you are able to untap with it and have like six mana, you frequently just sort of win the game. But I think there are so many things that it makes you have to think about as a Magic player to get to those lockouts frequently. And it's just a lot of fun in in a evil Karn way. Absolutely. And what I really like, and I mentioned on the episode, is that it's not an automatic win. Like, to minus and grab the lattice, sometimes they go, okay, bolt Karn. Oh, no, I have a lattice in my hand. This does virtually nothing. It sure does. Is it my turn? That sort of thing. So it's a really good card, but it's really skill intensive, like you were saying. And I think that's how really good cards should be, where you don't just play it and go, you go, you go, okay, um, take up and pass. And then you're like, okay, so to remove it, they have to do these things. Then on my turn, I untap and ideally win, but I got to play around this. And that to me is good magic. TM. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of issues with the static ability planeswalkers from War of the Spark. You know, we can get into those. I, I don't think that they're all good, but I do think that Karn the Great at least creates some interesting sort of gameplay experiences. Oh, it's not some wordplay. It's pretty good. Yeah, you like it? Yeah, yeah. So there you have it, folks. We do like some cards. Some, some. Let no one say I don't like at least two magic cards. You have to admit they're both red. <laughs> I sure do. Thank you, Emma, for the great question. If you'd like to submit a question to The Dive Down, you can always tweet us at The Dive Down, all one word. Heck, you can even email us, thedivedown at gmail.com. But that wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. Yeah, the reviews are really handy for people discovering us, for us showing up in like the iTunes search algorithms, things like that. We haven't had a new review in a while. If you like us, the easiest thing you can do is just go on Apple Podcasts, slam five stars. A text review is awesome too. We love reading them. Like when we get a text review, it's so fun for us to hear what people have to say about us. So please do. Literally the other day, I was having a very bad day. Work was stressful and I came home and I read reviews of my podcast. It made me feel very, very good. So these reviews don't only help people find us, it makes me feel good as an individual. So thank you, everybody who's reviewed our podcast. And listen, if you don't like our podcast, then you can subscribe to our Patreon at $15 an episode. Do that for long enough, and you get to decide a future episode topic. If you don't like our podcast, don't listen for a while. Give us money for an indeterminate amount of time, and we'll probably do an episode you want. And then then you get to tell us what to do. But if you like us, you can join our Patreon as well. Find us over at patreon.com slash the dive down. Also, shout out, as always, to our sponsor, manatraders.com. Sign up for Manatraders using promo code the dive down, all one word, and get 15% off your first three months of renting paper or magic online cards. It used to be 10. It's now 15% off. As always... Special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and ban it all!
going to go to this hotel lobby, right? And it's attached. The restaurant of this hotel is a TGI Friday's. I'm going to go down there. I'm going to get some boneless wings. It's going to be delicious. I want to keep that between you and me and the listeners because I know they're going to hear this. I'm going to get garlic Parmesan. It's going to be delicious. Maybe even a beer. I might get a cerveza, but remains to be seen.